Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. A lovely looking day shaping up here in Kamloops. Got a lot on the show to talk about, including uh, we'll talk a little bit about craft cannabis production with Brinda Rossotti, former Surrey Councillor. Uh, we'll also touch on parenting with Vanessa Lapointe, who's a doctor on the topic. Uh, we'll also touch base with Richard Zussman and talk some politics in a bit, including aspects of what we're about to talk about here on the Woodford Show to begin things off. Pleasure to welcome to the program, uh, former Kamloops MLA, Captain Minister, uh, now working in the legal can industry, but, um, well, Terry Lake, uh, and before you say anything, uh, we're going to talk about a political return. So um, why don't, off the top, I just throw you a question and you satisfy the curiosity of everybody out there because this <laughs> has been floating around for so long. Are you officially in as a Liberal candidate for the federal election this year? Well, I am officially uh, announcing my intention to seek the nomination for the Liberal Party of Canada for the 2019 federal election. So, um, obviously, that means that it is open to other uh, candidates or people who want to seek the nomination. But, uh, yep, I'm... uh, I'm back. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, very, uh, you know, difficult decision in many ways, sure. uh, but one that um, you know uh, I'm I'm happy with, and and uh, one that uh, my family is. Uh, very supportive of and uh, looking forward to the challenge ahead. Okay, so uh, you're seeking the nomination. Give me a timeline. What does that mean? When does the party meet here to say, okay, uh, we're choosing, If assuming you have some competition we don't know yet, but uh, when are they going to make a decision on this thing? Well, that'll be up to the uh, the writing association, the, uh, the, the EDA as it's known, and um, uh, you know, first of all, they have to go through some process uh, to make sure that uh, you know uh, people standing for the nomination of good character. Hopefully, I'll pass that <laughs> test, and um, and then they have to set a nomination date. So I, you know, I from my discussions with the executive, I suspect that will be sometime in the next. 30 to 45 days. Uh, you know, you need to get a candidate in place so that over the summer and into the fall, you can build your team and yeah. and start the campaign. Do you anticipate you're going to face competition or no? Well, I, I don't anticipate it, but you never know. And, you know, it's always good for the party to have a contest for the nomination. It generates yeah. interest. It creates new members. Uh, so I would welcome others who, you know, are thinking about doing it, but uh, I'm not aware of anyone else at this point who is uh, thinking of, uh, of doing that. Okay, so uh, as everyone who knows you knows, uh, you're former mayor, uh, former longtime Liberal MLA, cabinet minister. Uh, you have uh, notoriety. You have a reputation. Uh, people know who Terry Lake is, which is all works to your advantage in the world of politics. But uh, as you kind of step into this federal um, race or potentially federal race, uh, what are your challenges? Well, I think there's a number of different challenges. Uh, you know, the political climate in Canada, like elsewhere, is very polarized. And um, there are people that uh, are, are set in their decisions uh, already. And so for those people that uh, may not be happy with the Liberal Party, the current government, then my challenge would be to uh, to talk about the issues and, and what I think is important for uh, people in the Kamloops, Thompson Caribou, and, and what I think are issues that are important to Canadians and how I can be a strong voice for them in Ottawa, representing the views of a part of the country that hasn't really, uh, I don't think, received the level of attention from the federal government that uh, that it deserves. And for a very long time, when you think, you know, we had 
had a an ML or MP uh, from uh, the NDP, the third party, for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, we've had a combination of alliance and conservative MPs, uh, but you know we haven't seen a lot of investment in this region from the federal government, and I think I can be a strong voice to make that happen. Uh, how do you you mention people who've made up their minds and the sort of you and I have talked about this the bitter partisan divide. Uh, there's people out there who uh, are going to be very vitriolic in their reaction and their treatment of you during this race. It's unfortunate. Uh, to some degree, all the candidates will deal with certain aspects of this. Uh, but how do you deal with those people? Well, I think, you know, uh, on the extremes, it's it's difficult to deal with people that have extreme views. And so I, I don't intend to um, to focus on that. I want to focus on the people that aren't sure, that, that may be you know, like some of the policies of the Liberal Party, but perhaps are more conservative in some views. And I think as a former BC Liberal Party MLA, uh, people know that, you know, I'm, I'm capable of working in a sort of a bipartisan way. We were a coalition and, and the BC Liberal Party is a coalition of Liberals and Conservatives. And so I've demonstrated an ability to work with people that uh, have different views on, on different uh, subject matters, whether it's, you know, balancing the budget or whether it's harm reduction strategies. Uh, for the opioid uh, crisis. So I'm, I'm hopeful that people will look at me as someone who's very pragmatic. Uh, you know, I have foundational views, but I'm pragmatic. And, and I uh, certainly have worked with people in rural areas, you know, the ranching task force and, you know, my constituents, uh, former constituents in the North Thompson. So I have a, an understanding of the challenges of rural uh, British Columbia, but also the, the challenges that we face in cities like Kamloops. And, uh, and across the country, I've had the opportunity to... Uh, be uh, down east for uh, over a year and a half now and and um, you know I, I think I have a good sense of what uh, Canadians are thinking and and I and I just need to connect with as many people as possible uh, and help them see that I you know whether they agree with everything I do or say or not uh, that they will know I'm working hard for them uh, in the last election you could make an argument that a vote between the liberal and the NDP uh, allowed Kathy McLeod to win and if you combine those two votes she would have lost um, I don't know who the NDP are going to field I'm hearing there's uh, down to two people I don't know who they are um, how much are you keeping an eye on whomever the NDP fields and, and will that factor into this at all well, certainly it was a close three-way race last time, and so, um, you know, having a strong NDP candidate will make it a three-way race again this time. It remains to be seen, you know, the impact of having uh, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader in the House of Commons, you know, what impact that will have on the party's fortunes, and so I, I just anticipate a close race, whether it's a two-way race or a three-way race, um, it's going to be close. You can't take anything for granted, and it's six months until the election, and so much can happen in politics yeah. in six months and so it's just a matter of staying focused and being true to your your values and making sure that you're working hard to connect with as many people as possible what are the issues locally well, as I said, we haven't, I don't think, had as much uh, attention from the federal government in terms of investment. You know, we've we've got uh, issues up the North Thompson, for instance, uh, and in other rural areas of, of the riding uh, on connectivity. And, you know, the province has tried hard to increase the availability to high-speed internet. The federal government has announced a program. I want to make sure that our region uh, benefits from that program. When you're in Clearwater or 100 Mile House, you need to have connectivity in order to 
access the opportunities that make rural communities resilient to a changing world. You know, of the North Thompson, uh, having natural gas access would be a, a game changer for the development of industry and to reduce costs of, of heating for uh, people and businesses in the North Thompson. And then when you think about, you know, the Trans-Canada Highway, you know, we as a province did a lot of work and worked with the federal government, but all of a sudden that slowed down a lot. And I think we need to make sure that work on the Trans-Canada Highway uh, is uh, a priority uh, to make sure that we have a safe highway between here and Alberta. And uh, let's get going uh, on construction again. Uh, that's weird. I, I swear to God, I heard the NDP government say they're going to fast track the highway one work. Right? Yeah, well, <laughs> that remains to be seen. But I think pressure from Ottawa would do that. Yeah. And, you know, because there's federal money involved. And so I think if that was a priority for Ottawa, that would get done. Uh, you are no stranger to working under a polarizing leader. Christy Clark was definitely that. She had she evoked a strong reaction, whether it was favorable or not. Uh, Mr. Trudeau seems to be in that similar category. Uh, he evokes a strong reaction among people, be it favorable or be it you know negative. Uh, he's not exactly setting the stage in an election year from a controversy perspective with the SNC-Lavalin and some of the things that have kind of tarnished his particular brand. How do you feel about you know working for a leader that, that again, is can be sort of divisive in how people react to them? Well, I think as Canadians, we have a very, very high standard. When you look <laughs> around the world at some of the leaders uh, that we have today, and, you know, we don't have to look very far to find leaders that are not listening uh, to people that don't represent the best in human values. Um, I think we're very lucky to have someone like Justin Trudeau uh, lead our country. Does that make him perfect? Absolutely not. You know, and I think some of the things that uh, he's done along the way, he's learned a lot from. I mean, we look at the trip to India, I mean, he would uh, admit that that, you know, there was lots of reasons to, to be critical of that trip. Uh, the SNC-Lavalin affair has, um, I think, demonstrated that as much as you can try to uh, to do everything absolutely the best way possible, people have different views on, on, a, on a course uh, to take when you're dealing with those difficult issues. And when when you are a leader like Justin Trudeau, who does evoke strong emotions, uh, it's he's an easy target for people, whether it's you know the media, whether it's um, uh, just the uh, the electorate, and so. I think whenever you are a dynamic, um, unique type of person, you're going to invite criticism, whether it's positive or negative. Uh, you are currently working as the Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility with Hexo Corporation. Uh, you want to make a political return. We'll see if you become the candidate or not. But uh, from a workplace perspective, what's the status there? Are you stepping away? Are they going to give you a poly? How does that work out? Well, first of all, the company has been extremely supportive of uh, you know my goals and uh, what will happen is if should I become the candidate uh, once the election uh, gets closer uh, into the fall I will take a leave of absence from work and uh, and then uh, focus full-time on the campaign and uh, you know afterwards uh, if I'm successful then we'll have to uh, talk about what that looks like in terms of my relationship with Hexo in the future uh, if I'm not successful obviously then I would have an opportunity to go back and uh, resume my, my duties what uh, what's your uh, last question here. What's your what's your thought or message to Kathy McLeod at this particular point in in the in your quest to be the Liberal representative? Well, listen. Anyone who uh, steps up and runs for public office should be commended. Someone who has been successful as Kathy has, and I know how grinding her schedule is and how hard she works. So I would say thank you for doing what you've done, Kathy. And and I've always enjoyed working with Kathy. And I look forward to a very respectful uh, debate. If should I uh, receive the nomination. 
And, uh, you know, I think the issues should be the issue, not the people. All right. Terry, pleasure. We'll see what happens. Thanks, Shane. And that was Terry Lake, former MLA and cabinet minister seeking to make a political return ahead of this fall's federal election. Quick break on The Woodford Show, and we'll talk craft cannabis on the other side with Brenda Rossotti. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. A real pleasure to welcome to the program the co-founder of Cannabis Wise, also a former uh, city councillor in the city of Surrey down in the Lower Mainland, and I believe somebody who hails from Kamloops originally, Brenda Rossotti. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's so good to talk to you. Yes, I graduated from NORCAM in 1987. <laughs> it's good to talk to you, too. It's been a long time. It has. Um, uh, Brinder, off the top, uh, we're all aware of the challenges legalization has posed in the last six months uh, since it was uh, afforded back in October. Uh, there are supply issues, uh, there's production issues, uh, to some extent there's pricing issues, maybe born of the previous two things. But uh, uh, you're on this morning to talk about how smaller sort of craft cannabis style uh, facilities could really help out, but yet it seems like they're being strangled before they can get off the ground uh, through Health Canada. What's the challenge here? Why, why are they having such a, a terrible time getting off the ground? You know, well, one thing uh, there's consensus on is that the inclusion of small producers is vital to the success of legalization. As you've mentioned, we're hearing lots of issues of supply, of quality, and about bringing the pre-legalization growers into the legal regime. And honestly, BC has the most to lose if we're not in a position um, to be able to get these pre-legalization growers into the regulated market. The reason I use the word pre-legalization is because government's known that the existence of these growers um, here in um, Canada, but especially in BC, you know, we've read numbers up to $7 billion of our economy um, has come from the benefit of these growers. And what we do know right now is that the regulatory framework, the way it's established now, is creating a lot of challenges and barriers. Uh, we travel the um, GrowTech Labs funded um, a co-op, uh, the small cannabis producers and processors co-op, um, and we've traveled across the province to hear from growers. And what they're saying to us is uh, the canopy size, um, the, the regulatory uh, paperwork um, are all significant challenges that are going to hinder people from entering the regulated market. Okay, so what cha what changes do you want Health Canada to make here to, in order to, uh, you know, have some regulation, have some responsibility to ensure that good players are entering the market, but also not make things so restrictive that you have thousands and thousands of, of craft producers that are applying, and on the other side you have a couple, you know, one or two that are so far have squeaked out the other side. Yeah, and, and so what we're looking at is that our goal is to make sure that uh, we are adopting uh, principles of a co-op and the purpose of the co-op is not only into um, making it easier around collective innovation, collective quality and collective success, but it's also uh, to mitigate the risk. And one of the things that we're finding is that A, the canopy size that government has allocated to the small growers uh, is too small. Uh, the conversations that are taking place uh, in the province around what is going on with ALR land um, and municipal zoning is uh, definitely an issue. So we're calling 
for uh, more advocacy, um, uh, more education, and more collaboration between governments. Um, and and we're looking at um, advocating so that government is recognizing that having people apply and it's um, quoted as high as a million dollars for a small producer to go through the Health Canada process at this point um, is to make sure that they're eliminating those barriers so more people are actually successfully able to go through the uh, regulatory process. Uh, maybe walk some of us through who aren't aware of the intricacies behind the scenes. There's no, uh, like my understanding is that medical cannabis is sort of regulated via Health Canada, uh, but the province is in charge of retail cannabis. But as far as production goes, is that entirely through Health Canada? There's no choice to file something under the province and perhaps go through that way or no? Not at this point. So how um, the three levels of government dealt with it out of the task force recommendation is all of the licensing at this point um, around production and processing rests with the federal government. Um, the provincial government uh, has been uh, allowed to have the mandate around choosing what retail outlet and retail licensing looks at in their province. And the municipalities are responsible for zoning. What we do know is that there is close to 6,000 um, uh, original medically licensed uh, producers, MMAR and uh, MMAPR and ACMPR growers, who have already been growing for patients. And what we're hearing from them is that the 2,500 square foot canopy is too small. So we're advocating for uh, a, a higher cap for the growing in terms of the size that they'll be able to grow. Um, and we're also calling that um, there be an immediate increase to the annual microprocessors limit in what they can um, produce and give back to medicinal and recreational patients. And um, the other thing that is really important is the improvement on the testing regime and the tools that are used to recognize uh, microproducers, i.e. Uh, for outdoor cultivation and organic producers. This is where the conversation comes in on the provinces level around what to do with ALR land. Um, you know, I would say that the provincial government has um, uh, engage, been engaging with us with some enthusiasm. Uh, to make it sort of uh, give an example that people are familiar with, if you look at the craft beer model in um, BC, it's a model that is not only very efficient, but it's created a very healthy culture for uh, the growers of, you know, the producers of craft beer. Yeah. So we're looking at a similar model where you would be able to have uh, eliminate barriers for the producers and the growers, have a, a distribution and retail model that uh, values BC Bud that's internationally recognized around the world. Uh, last question, Brenner. We're almost flat out of time here, but uh, one I wanted to ask you. Uh, when it comes to supply challenges, not only that, I believe the point is being made that a lot of these craft producers are currently sort of catering to an illegal market. They would like to become legitimate. So when you talk about getting rid of the black market and addressing the supply issues in the legal market, how critical could these small craft cannabis producers be? They're, they're absolutely critical. We applaud the government, federal government for moving forward on legalization. I think there's been some unintended consequences of the regulations, and one of the unintended consequences is the barriers they've created to the pre-legalization growers who know the business, who know the product, produce very clean quality products, would deal with the supply shortage, the issue of uh, quality, and to deal with the issue of bringing people into the regulated market by allowing a bigger canopy size uh, and eliminating some of the costs attached to um, the processing and to value outdoor cultivation and working closer with the ALR. Brenda, it's always a pleasure. It's been too long. We'll have to make sure that uh, we talk sooner than later. 
Thank you, and it's a pleasure, and thank you for having me on. Always a pleasure. That's Brenda Rossotti talking about uh, the plight facing small craft cannabis production uh, companies across the country who would like to become legitimate and so far are really being choked off by Health Canada. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show, get caught up to the news to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we'll talk to Global BC's Richard Zussman. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. Real pleasure to welcome to the program Global BC's Richard Zussman. Good morning, Richard. Hey, good morning, Shane. How are you? I'm excellent. I've walked through a crosswalk this morning in Victoria, and I think some of the listeners that visited Victoria will know that the roadways here are a little bit bizarre with how slow people drive. But some woman almost ran me over in the crosswalk. <laughs> so I'm lucky I'm with you this morning. <laughs> All right. Hey, I uh, <laughs> wanted to bring you on because we had some pretty uh, big political news up here, uh, as you know, because oh. uh, you talked to him as well. Uh, Terry Lake is going to seek the federal liberal nomination here, pending a nomination meeting in about a month or so. We'll see what happens. Uh, but a fairly big guy, a star candidate, you could say, someone with some pretty significant credentials to uh, to his portfolio. Uh, what's your assessment of, of what kind of a challenge he could mount here and what has long been sort of a conservative-held riding? Yeah, he's not a sort of star candidate. He's a massive star candidate, I think. I think this is as big a candidate as the federal liberals can get in a community, right? Terry Lake is as well-known as a politician in Kamloops as anyone. Mayor, high-profile minister in Christy Clark's government, uh, well-liked guy uh, in Victorian Kamloops and seemingly everywhere else he goes. And, you know, the riding that he's running in has been a conservative riding since it was established in 2004. But if you look at the results from 2015, it was actually pretty close. Uh, the NDP uh, finished uh, 3,000 votes behind uh, the conservatives, and then the liberals were just behind that. But when you look at it even closer, Shane, you look at how much money was spent on the campaign, mm. the liberals basically spent nothing. And yeah. sure, that was a big Trudeau wave that swept across British Columbia, and some of the shine is off Prime Minister Trudeau now. But if the Liberals decide to invest the money in this race, which they will now that Terry Lake's the candidate, this is something the Liberals could easily flip. And it helps flip the dialogue around what's going on with SNC-Lavalin, and it allows the Liberals to sort of build on, look, we still can attract star candidates. Terry Lake looked at the controversy that's going on. He made his decision after that to run. And I think this helps send a message to other big candidates who are thinking about running for the Liberals. Well, if Terry Lake does it, I could do it too. Now, speaking of that, uh, if we reflect back on the provincial election in 2013, uh, everybody had uh, the NDP uh, in front, uh, the famous front cover of the province there. This man could kick a puppy and still win. Uh, But one of the things that I think in reflecting back on that that we missed is a sign that the B.C. Liberals were still very much in that race was the amount of star candidates they were attracting at the time. Uh, We have a lot of uh, ridings to fill across the country for the federal Liberals and everybody else as well. But uh, is Terry Lake an indication, and, and if more follow, an indication that the, the Liberal brand is still strong despite uh, some assumptions in the media coverage as of late that it's taken a bit of a beating? Yeah, I think that's a good question, and I think the Liberal brand is still relevant. And if you believe the polling, one of two parties will form government in October, either the Conservatives or the Liberals. And I believe that 
there will be people interested in the progressive liberal cause who will throw their name in the ring. You know, a lot was made of the candidates. Justin Trudeau was able to recruit uh, Bill Morneau, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott. You know, we know what's happened with Wilson-Raybould and Philpott since. But that was coming from a third party. Now they're governing, and sure, they have the blemish on them, but I think it's easier to recruit. And I think we're going to start seeing more and more well-known candidates come forward. Uh, in Vancouver, we saw Tamara Taggart come forward. I expect we're going to see a pretty high-profile candidate in Vancouver, Granville, as the Liberals try to hold on that seat after telling Wilson-Raybould she couldn't run there. So I think this is a positive sign chain for the party, in B.C. especially, that they can recruit big candidates. I don't think the Conservatives are going to have a problem recruiting big candidates either, but it is a real positive sign for the Liberals that Terry Lake, after all the consideration and thought he gave to this, that he decided he wanted to get back into politics and, and run under the, the federal Liberal brand. Any idea who might uh, throw their hat in the ring in Vancouver Granville or no? Yeah, there's lots of names that are still floating around as big as Gregor Robertson, but I think he's having too much fun to autumn politics at this point, although... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he makes a political comeback as one point as well, like Terry Lake just has. Uh, I think they're still working their way through a list of sort of former city councillors, uh, former elected officials. Uh, Gabe Garfinkel is the party's president uh, in British Columbia. He also ran provincially for the BC Liberals in what made up a lot of that riding, uh, yeah. Vancouver Fairview. He could potentially be a fallback option. So there'll be somebody that people in that community are familiar with and likely someone uh, greater Vancouver and even wider are familiar with as well. And also, uh, Mr. Garfinkel is former press secretary for Christy Clark, and I don't know what her political comeback status is at this point. Yeah, you just gave Gabe an upgrade, though. He was executive assistant to <laughs> Clark uh, and then disappeared for a while. But, you know, the Christy Clark thing is fascinating, and one of those things that interests us immensely in Victoria you know, she is, you know, Shane, you spent time with her. Yep. She was a political animal, right? When she was at CKNW, sure, she was having fun, but she was itching to get back, and she got back. You know, she's ha she has millions of reasons, I think, at this point not to come back, based on how much she's probably getting paid for all these new jobs that she has. But I think the political bug is too strong for Christy Clark. It will take the right opportunity, I think, to jump back in. There's lots of talk that her and Brad Wall and Philip Couillard, sort of a holy trinity of former premiers, have been discussing about potentially creating something under the conservative banner. But Christy Clark has been a federal liberal in her past. So she's one of these political chameleons that I think she could run for either party. She has a lot of baggage with her, though, too. And I'm not sure she wants to drag you know, her loved ones back into that. But she loves politics so much, I wouldn't be surprised if she comes back. It won't be this time around, Shane, but I think if the Conservatives have a hard time in this election and Justin Trudeau is able to win, don't be surprised if Christy Clark at least in some capacity comes back uh, to public life to try to... to sort of push the Conservatives back into relevancy if they lose this upcoming election. In 2015, uh, the, one of the long complaints uh, in the West has been that the election federally is always decided uh, before we even get results along the West Coast. But in 2015, uh, B.C. played a huge role. It pushed the Trudeau Liberals over the top into majority territory when they captured a bunch of Vancouver ridings. Liberals traditionally don't do very well in Western Canada. Uh, the Conservatives got wiped out, I think, in large part due to uh, some of the 
the aspects around Mr. Harper and the perceptions of him at the time, but also in Vancouver specifically, any MP who had a riding that touched marine area uh, was turfed. And I think the Kitsilano Coast Guard base and some of the stuff around the Coast Guard itself played a huge role in that. Uh, we're now a bunch of years removed from that. Are the Liberals safe in those ridings still? Do the Conservatives have a shot at bringing some of those back into the fold or no? The Conservatives will no doubt bring a bunch of them back. There were some of these ridings where the Liberals invested very little time and money and saw this huge sweep. So their mission map squeeze, like a mission Abbotsford riding, will be very, very hard for the Liberals to hold on to. James Moore's old riding in Port Coquitlam and Conquitlam and Port Moody will be very hard for the Liberals to hold on to. But incumbent status helps. You know, you get to put re-elect on your sign instead mm. of elect. Uh, that clearly helps, but there will be a number of those ridings that the Liberals will struggle with. But they could surprise in Burnaby North Seymour, where Terry Beach pulled off a big upset, and it's where the terminal is for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. He has showed himself as a pretty uh, savvy politician. I think Kelowna is going to be another hard one for the Liberals to hold on to. But with Terry Lake running in Kamloops, it opens up a lot of options. You know, you mentioned the Liberals have historically struggled in B.C. They were down to two seats. They jumped up to 17 in the last election. And now, you know, they're just hoping to make gains in other parts outside of Metro. And Terry Lake is the start of that conversation for the party. I, I think, sure, the poll numbers are, are going down and the Liberals will lose seats in B.C. I think that's almost certain. But I don't think they're going to hemorrhage as much as people think. And guys like Terry Lake and even Tamara Taggart, who's in a tough fight against an incumbent, uh, Don Davies in Vancouver, you know, with her name recognition as a former TV anchor, she gives herself a pretty good chance of, of a strong finish, if not a victory in that riding as well. It would be tough to be the popular incumbent in Don Davies, but she's going to be able to give it a shot. And just a random question to finish things off here, because <laughs> I, I know that you've been, uh, you've been uh, as I have uh, on Twitter over the last few days, wading into the 420 debate and getting uh, some pretty interesting responses, especially from uh, Dana Larson and Jody Emery. I'm just sort of curious. Uh, I know I talked to Mike Farnworth a, a while back who said there's, there's no more you know, room to maneuver on this 420 protest. Uh, it, of course, was held. Uh, they thumbed their nose at the establishment again. The city of Vancouver said, okay, we're going to give you one more year uh, but just totally out of curiosity do you see a f future for that event and and b do you think the province's patience is going to run out and that farnworth in, in another year or so might say okay listen that is it there's a lot there right so there's got to be political pressure from constituents you know spencer chandra herbert uh is an ndp mla the event takes place in his constituency if people in that community are fed up and they go to spencer and say you need to do something about it and he goes to mike farnworth and to the premier and says you need to do something about it i'm pretty sure the ndp will do something about it um i do think there's a future for the event you know, as I said uh, many times in conversations with Jody Emery and Dana Larson, and you have to give them kudos. They're willing to take on anyone. You know, often they don't use all the facts, but they do use, you know, their arguments, and they do take on all comers. Um, and I think you have to give them kudos for that. But they also should be at the table with Vancouver City Hall and other stakeholders to have a discussion about how this event can work going forward. So they'd have to get over all the boundaries of, you know, smoking on a beach, which is against the law, as well as selling edibles, which is against the law. 
but I think there are ways that they can work to make this a festival that celebrates cannabis culture, celebrates marijuana, but doesn't have a profound negative impact on those that live in that community. I think the event will continue forever, Shane. I just hope there's a way we can figure it out so it becomes sort of a marquee festival on Vancouver's calendar, like the Gay Pride Parade and many others. Uh, just do it in a way where you're playing by the same rules as everyone else. Yeah, and I, but my problem is I don't think Jody Emery or Dana Larson want to play by the same rules as everybody else. They and don't, I think, and I, and think I think that's pressure, the problem. You know, that's our responsibility, Shane, is to put pressure on them to sit at the table and play by those rules. And if they don't, then you know, get to the question that you and I talked about before about enforcement. You know, do they come in and crack and rip down those tents, rip down the stage, and send a message that you can't set up these illegal? Uh, festivals in our community. We'll see if we get to that point. I don't think we're there quite yet, but I think, you know, a little bit of pushing from Spencer Chandra Herbert's constituents uh, could change that conversation a bit. All right. Richard, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir, and I'm still awaiting your beer order. <laughs> Thanks, Shane. I'll send it in soon. <laughs> All right. There's Global BC's Richard Zussman talking politics. Quick break, and we'll talk parenting on the other side here on The Woodford Show. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, on April 27th, uh, parents here in Kamloops will be able to take advantage of a special workshop uh, designed to help them raise their children. And a uh, real pleasure to welcome the program, one of the voices that will help them do that, Dr. Vanessa LaPointe. Good morning, Vanessa. How are you? I'm very well. Good morning. Thank you for taking some time to join us this morning. Really appreciate that. My pleasure. Okay, uh, you are a, a registered psychologist, you're a parenting educator, and most importantly, you are also a mother. Um, I guess, first off, uh, tell me what led you down the road to kind of uh, become this person that travels around and, and specializes in parenting and, and is able to provide some key advice uh, to parents out there who may be struggling. Uh, where did you arrive in the place you are now? Well, a couple of things. When I was um, studying, I was always interested in working with children and really understanding how the brain develops and uh, what children need to grow in the best possible way. And, of course, there's certain approaches to all of that that we all get taught and that we come into as parents and um, even as people who study in that field. And so I looked at all of those things, and then I became a mother and realized, wow, this is really hard. (laughs) And a lot of this stuff either doesn't work or feels wrong to me which led me down a whole other path of study and ultimately to uh, the place that I am now where I share all of the information that I have learned both as a professional and as a mother to parents who are working to grow their kids in the best possible way. When you say things felt wrong to you, uh, what, what did you mean by that? What felt wrong? A lot of how uh, we raise our children seems to be kind of governed by the popularized culture of the day. And unfortunately, a lot of the forces in terms of that popularized culture right now are kind of antiquated um, approaches left over uh, from years gone by that are what we call behaviorist in nature. And so they uh, rely on punishment and really kind of playing the relationship that the parent has with the child against the child in order to have the child falling into line. Uh, It really is parenting from a place of fear rather than from a place of love. And so as a parent, when you engage in those kinds of uh, tactics or strategies, you often will have this gut instinct that tells you, oh, this doesn't feel good or it doesn't feel right, but it's 
apparently the thing that everybody does, and so I'm going to do that thing too. Um, and yet, if we listen to that voice and then uh, go down the rabbit hole of really looking at the science of child development around all of that, we will find that that little voice is actually a very important voice to be listening to. Uh, you touched on something really important there, and I remember uh, from my uh, being a young man myself, and, uh, and when it came to discipline, a lot of things have changed. Uh, you know, my mother and father would uh, have no problem taking me into the room and paddling my butt pretty good. Matter of fact, I remember vividly a, a wooden spoon being broken over my bottom one time. Uh, but mm-hmm. I would I would never do that to my children. I think that aspect of parenting has really, really changed. But then you struggle with, I mean, how do you guide a young person? How do you enforce discipline and and, and behavior. Yes. And so a lot of times we think that we have to go the route of these sort of um, forceful kinds of ways of trying to discipline our children, believing that this will curtail all of the behaviors and mold them into the human beings that they are meant to be. And when we really look at what child development is, the first thing that we come into understanding is that Children are meant to misbehave. They're meant to have meltdowns. They're meant to tantrum. They're meant to sort of push back and, and really try those boundaries out and see what holds and what gives. They're meant to do all of that because their brains actually need those kinds of experiences repeatedly, thousands and thousands of times uh, over their developmental span in order to figure out how to self-regulate from the inside rather than from the outside. And when we punish and scare and um, consequence and time out and do all those kinds of things to our kids, what we end up doing actually uh, is making them fearful of misbehaving, but not really showing their brains neurologically and otherwise the way through so that eventually they'll become very skilled at managing all of this on their own. Now, as I mentioned off the top, you're coming to Kamloops uh, for a workshop to help parents out that takes place Saturday, April the 27th. Uh, What can parents who are going to attend your workshop look forward to? What are you going to touch on? Yeah, so we've called the workshop Parenting 2.0. And really what this workshop does is it takes the best of what science has to offer us and combines that with the years of experience that my partner David and I have in working in the field of child development and really helps parents understand, first and foremost, what child development is and so why your kids need certain experiences, why certain behaviors from birth on up to adolescence and beyond will appear and why even though those behaviors may make you crazy. Uh, There are actually things that your kids need to go through, uh, how to make sense of those behaviors, how you can be responding um, to those behaviors, making sure that the relationship that you have with your child is working for you uh, in the name of all of that rather than against it. And then finally, looking at how important it is that we understand within ourselves as adults that we need to grow ourselves so that we can grow our children. And often what we say is that you can only bring someone as far as you've brought yourself and you will only be able to give your child uh, what you've been given. And so when we take a look sort of um, retrospectively at our own lives, we often can figure out why parenting, even though on paper it sounds kind of easy and like we should be able to manage it, actually is really hard and really kind of gets us going sometimes um, and to take an introspective look at ourselves so we can grow us to grow them. Dr. LaPointe, it's been a real pleasure taking, uh, thanking you again for taking a few minutes out of your morning. I look forward uh, to you arriving in the city and your workshop on the 27th. Perfect. We're looking forward to that as well. Thanks for having me on.
Appreciate it. That's Dr. Vanessa Lapointe. As I mentioned, uh, she and David Loist will hold a workshop to help parents of children ages uh, 0 to 19 years old. That'll take place uh, April 27th here in Kamloops from about 9 o'clock in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. Uh, and you can reach out and find tickets for that. Uh, our thanks to her and my other guests on the Woodford Show today. And my thanks to you for listening in. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL. Same time tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shoe Swap from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.